0: Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Father, we thank you for your grace. All that you've provided in Christ, and yet we are sinners so unworthy. We thank you. Thank you for your goodness you've displayed in Christ and and yet the exceeding goodness that we look forward to that we we don't even fully understand is yet to come. We we thank you father for your greatness, your goodness and the overwhelming love that you've displayed to us already. And uh we we pray as we look at your word today. I know it's a very small section, but uh it does Touch on this subject of grace that we just sang about. Father, we thank you for your grace. And we pray that you give us grace this morning to understand your word. And, and we pray that you would help our minds and hearts to be uh, prepared as we begin a new study in your word. Give us, please, some uh, background on these things and, and help us to have an eager anticipation for what you'll teach us and encourage us with as we look at this new book and we ask these things in Jesus name. Amen. Um, I was asking this question of some family members uh, yesterday and um, I wonder what your thoughts are. Uh, Normally um, the original of a book or a movie is often the best, right? There's sequels that often come out, and we understand often sequels come out because the first one made money, and so you want to make money on the second one, and it's an easy way to do it, right? So the sequels often are very cheap, and some <laughs> some series end up doing five, six, or seven, and they're so cheap, right? But they're just an easy way to make money. But occasionally, occasionally a sequel is actually better than the original. Have you thought that before? Now, I'm going to put out some examples. You may or may not agree, but that's, that's fine. But uh, one of the ones, at least in the movie world, um, that is pretty commonly agreed that the sequel was better than the original was uh, in the realm of uh, this movie. Are you familiar with Star Wars? Well, the sequel to that was uh, The Empire Strikes Back, right? So it's pretty commonly agreed that the sequel in that case was better than the original. If you know much about the production of the original, George Lucas and going through was obviously just getting started, encountered a lot of resistance, not many people really believed in the project, and even the formation of what was going to come afterwards was was not well worked out, but uh, after the success of the first one, it uh, created opportunity to do some things better in the second one. Well, so it's, it seemed like I got a pretty good agreement on that one. Well, how about this series? A um, little less familiar to me, but uh, some people say the second Star Trek movie was better than the first one. Um, I'm I'm seeing some nods of the heads. I'm trying to get universal appeal here. I figure some people like Star Wars, and then if you don't like Star Wars often, you like Star Trek. So, all right, so we got pretty universal coverage there. Um, Another one that I read about, if you're not into any of the Star Wars, maybe the comic book scene, was Spider Man. Some some say Spider Man 2 was better than the original. All right, I see some disagreement on that one, but. Uh, And if you're a child in the audience, maybe you uh, would uh, think about this last example of the Toy Story family. Uh, I actually like the third one the best, and uh, it was interesting because um, I'm maybe going to ruin it for you if you haven't seen it, but uh, the Toy Story 3, the the young boy, Andy, who's had these kids, grows up and goes off to college and is given away his toys. And it's kind of a, a sentimental moment. And actually, we watched that right as our oldest daughter, uh, Samantha, was going off to college. So it was kind of an emotional thing, or, or just had gone off or something. But some say Toy Story 3 was uh, the best of the series. Well, I think you understand the point. Often, sequels are not as good as the originals, um, but sometimes they are. Um, but in the biblical world, we have some sequels that are written as well. And um, in the in the biblical world, there's not so much a comparison of which one is better or than the other. They're all equally valid and applicable to the Christian life. So we're going to actually look at a sequel uh, for the next few months, Lord willing, in the book of Second Corinthians. So. You want to go ahead and turn there. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians, which is the second book of uh, Paul's letters uh, to the Corinthians, the, the second epistle that we have recorded for us, at least. Um, but we're going to look at this. And I understand at some point in your recent past, your previous pastor, Jacob Elwert, had gone through 1 Corinthians. So. You might ask, well, why did you pick 2 Corinthians? Is it because it's you know, your favorite book? Well, no. Um, the basic reason is when, when Pastor Elwert was leaving, I asked him, I said, what are all the books you've covered in a full expositional series, and which ones have you not covered? And I was delighted to see that he hadn't covered James yet, so I, I jumped on that. And then uh, the list is a little more challenging of what's left. Uh, it, was, it was Isaiah or Jeremiah. Um, so I, I figured those would be pretty difficult. And uh, it, was, it was essentially between uh, second Peter was what I was thinking about and then Bob had to start the Sunday School series with Jim Berg on second Peter, so it took that option away. I didn't figure I could compete with Jim Berg, so. Um, <laughs> So we ended up in Second Corinthians, so that's, that's where we're going to be for the next few weeks or months, Lord willing. Um, but as I mentioned, this is a follow-up to what happens in First Corinthians, um, but we should not look at it in terms of the world about it being less quality than the original. The content here in Second Corinthians is some of the content you find most quoted by people all over the place I, I you, there's very well-known passages in here for example Paul talks about the uh, the thorn that he had in his flesh and how he prayed three times for God to remove that and God said no my grace is sufficient for thee um, we also read in chapter 5 about to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord we read in chapter 5 as well about the atonement of Christ He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might have the righteousness of God uh, because he uh, sacrificed for us. So we we have some well-known passages that are often quoted and very important, and and yet we're going to dive into it. But we're going to start slow. We're going to start actually with the first two verses this morning because I need to give you a bunch of background to help make some sense of it, set the context, And then start slowly. So we're going to look at verses 1 and 2, read those, and then begin working through the details of what this book is about. So it says in verses 1 and 2, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth and with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see here our introduction right away is to Paul as the author. He is the author of this book. And if you're to do some reading and research on this, you'll find that Paul is pretty much the undisputed author. There is very little, if any, resistance to this idea that he is the author, which is unusual because in modern scholarship, many of the books of the New Testament are contested. They, they, they don't always universally agree on who wrote it. But in this case, it is pretty much universally agreed that it was the Apostle Paul. And as he says here, he was an apostle. He was an apostle of Christ Jesus, but he was an unusual apostle. So let's look actually at his conversion. Let's, let's go back to the book of Acts and see how Paul was converted because Paul was originally a Pharisee. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 8. Do some reading there. Acts chapter eight, Acts chapter nine, and we'll come back to Second Corinthians here in a little bit. But in Acts chapter eight, it tells us about Saul. Um, In chapter seven of Acts, what we see is that Stephen uh, was stoned, and it tells us at the uh, eight—I'm sorry, the beginning of chapter eight—that Saul, his name originally was Saul, Saul of Tarsus. He was in agreement with those that were putting Stephen to death, it tells us at the beginning of chapter 8. He was a Pharisee, and he was involved in persecuting the church. So look at the rest of one, and uh, we'll just go to actually verse 3 here. It says, And on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him but Saul began ravaging the church entering house after house and dragging off men and women he would put them in prison so we see that Saul was a pharisee who was persecuting the church but God brought conversion uh in Paul's or Saul's life he became known later as Paul look at chapter 9 and we'll see how that happens verses 1 through 6 it says now Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way both men and women he might bring them bound to Jerusalem as he was traveling it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. So we have here, the Lord uh, gives this uh, vision to Saul, and ultimately it is a conversion that takes place. And we see uh, later on in chapter 9, look down at 17, we see that he's going to end up getting... Baptized, which was an evidence of his faith. It didn't, um, baptism doesn't save you, it's what you do in obedience having been saved. It is a profession of your faith, it is a testimony of your faith and your commitment to obeying the Lord. And so that's what Paul does here in, in 17 and 19. It says, so Ananias departed and entered the house and after laying his hands on him said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight and got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. So we have here the conversion of Saul. This is him becoming uh, a believer in Jesus Christ. He is uh, an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ, and therefore he becomes an apostle. He is called to take the gospel around the world. Notice verses 15 and 16, which we skipped here, but we'll see the calling of the Apostle Paul and what he's going to do for the Lord. Verse 15 and 16 says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So we see here, Saul is converted, he becomes the Apostle Paul, and the Lord's purpose for him is that he is going to share the gospel with the Jewish people as well as the Gentiles. And if you uh, are familiar at all with the book of Acts, one of the things you note is at the beginning of Acts, they are sharing the gospel in Jerusalem, persecution breaks out, they begin to spread the gospel in other places, and Paul eventually becomes the prominent one taking the gospel to the Gentiles and sharing the gospel with him. So this is the Apostle Paul. And note that Paul says about himself back in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now often these introductions that are given in the epistles tie to themes of the book. And I I believe that's the case here because... A big part of what Paul is doing in 2 Corinthians is he's defending his apostleship. And so he is identifying that he is an apostle, and that was by God's will. It was not just something he decided to do, it was God's calling of him to do it, and he's signifying that here uh, with his introduction. So we also see included along with it is Paul's ministry partner, and that is Timothy. It talks about Timothy here, uh, introducing him uh, as the brother, or our brother. Timothy uh, had some involvement in the church at Corinth. He is uh, someone who went along with Paul on his missionary journeys. And just to give you a little bit of background about Timothy, if you were to read 2 Timothy, there's actually two books uh, written to Timothy directly, First and 2 Timothy. Um, and in 2 Timothy in particular, we see how... Timothy came from a family of believers, or at least uh, the ladies in his family were believers. Paul mentions that it was his mother Eunice who was a believer, and his grandmother Lois was a believer as well. But Timothy also had a Greek father, It we're told in Acts chapter 16. But Timothy had a role in helping Paul on his missionary endeavors, and we see him uh, at the beginning of uh, Acts chapter 16, but we also see him in chapter 18, which was Paul's second missionary journey. And then we also see him mentioned in Acts 19 and 20, which was Paul's third missionary journey. Now I have uh, a chart here that would uh, describe some of these missionary journeys. I realize it's probably really hard to see this, but um, what we have here is... Uh, a mention of Paul's second missionary journey here is green right that is green I'm partially colorblind so I'm looking to my wife to confirm Um, so the green here is basically what Paul was doing on the second missionary journey you see that he was at Athens he goes to Corinth and this is where the church was located that we're talking about here in 2nd Corinthians so there's also mention of his uh, third missionary journey um, a lot of repeat visits Um, and then eventually where he goes to Rome but Timothy was one of Paul's most trusted helpers in the missionary work that he was doing and so Timothy is mentioned here uh, to the Corinthians who would have known Timothy because of his own personal visits with them as well so Timothy is with Paul as he's writing this message to the church and we see here the audience who is it that Paul is writing to well it's the church at Corinth, But let's turn back to the book of Acts in chapter 18, because there we read about how the church got started. It was actually Paul who was used to get that church started in Corinth, as we see here in chapter 18. So we see in chapter 18 the beginning of the church in Corinth, and we see in verse 1, After these things he, he that is Paul, left Athens and went to Corinth and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So that was Paul's... Pattern. He would often go to the synagogues to share the gospel, explain who Jesus Christ was, what he had done, and how they needed to trust in Christ. And that's what he's doing here. And there are many that are converted. We see some early examples here. Look at uh, verse uh, 7 with me. It says, Then he left there and went to the house of a man named uh, Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue." And then Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. So we see a, a good number of people in Corinth there are trusting in Christ, being baptized, being added to the church. And then look at verse nine through verses 9 through 11, how the Lord tells Paul to stay there. It says, The Lord said to Paul in the night vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city, and he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So it's encouraging to me. I, I don't know if you uh, think this way, but I look at the Apostle Paul and think the man was incredible. He, there's, there's a point in which there's a riot taking place, And he's eager to get up and speak. And you're thinking, no, dude, you're going to get killed, right? But he seemed to be fearless in the face of danger and preaching the gospel. He he goes to Jerusalem where they hate him, and they they all want to kill him, and yet he wants to get up and speak in front of them as well. He just seems to be fearless, and yet it's interesting. The Lord says here, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Paul. So he was human. He, He is an apostle, and he certainly did have great courage and God gave him great grace, but he was also human. He, he did have fears. Um, and it says, though, that he is safe, and it says the Lord has many people there, so he stayed for a year and a half. So there were obviously many people converted in his time there, so there was a sizable number of people that were part of that church there in Corinth. So, um, just wanted to uh, review the uh, location. Uh, again, real quick, uh, another map for you. These are some places where Paul started churches uh, on his missionary journey. So we have Corinth here in Greece um, is uh, where we're talking about. So notice also Ephesus, where Paul spent a lot of time, Thessalonica, Philippi, other and Colossae, other places where we have epistles that were written to those churches. But that is where the city was. Now the city of Corinth, just to give you a real brief background, the city of Corinth was, because of its location, notice on the water, so there was a lot of trade. So it tended to be a wealthy city with a varied population. Um, many, uh, some, some of the writers that I uh, looked at said it was a very cosmopolitan type of place. There was a lot of wealth. There's a lot of different people. There's a lot of traffic uh, because of the trade. So it was a very modern for its time city. Um, and yet, it, we know that it was also a very wicked city, a very immoral place where there was immoral pagan worship that took place. Now, we're also told about this church that the, uh, the members w- were primarily Gentiles because of its location. But we did see in Acts 18, there were some Jewish believers there as well. Um, but there were also a combination of wealthy and poor people. We, we learned from 1 Corinthians, that there were both wealthy and poor people there and this actually caused some tension and I believe you would have covered in uh, your study of 1 Corinthians how uh, even at the Lord's table, in observing the Lord's table, there was a difference in how the wealthy observed it versus the poor and there was contention and and, uh, difficulties because of that but there were different social statuses. There were also slaves as well as freedmen that were part of the church. And in fact, uh, 1 Corinthians 6 tells us that some of the believers there had very wicked lifestyles out of which they were rescued. Paul says in that passage, when naming some pretty egregious sins, he says, and such were some of you. So there were some people saved out of some pretty wicked and sinful things. But I need to jump ahead. I'm trying to go fast in the slides here and get to the occasion and purpose as we're running out of time here this morning and we need to get a few things covered. The occasion and purpose. Oh, so looking at, first of all, the letter, uh, what number epistle was this? Well, we call it 2 Corinthians. But most conservative Bible scholars believe this wasn't actually the second. Corinthians letter written by Paul to the Corinthians. So just to give you a little bit of support for that, look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which we know came before 2 Corinthians, um, mentions another letter. So 1 Corinthians 5 verse 9, Paul says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Well, we know that's not written in 2 Corinthians. It's not what he's referring to. And it was before he wrote 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians actually has, is, is probably 2 Corinthians. <laughs> it's the second letter that he, he, he had written, right? All right. So we also think that uh, he wrote one between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians as well. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2 with me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, um, it talks about another letter. He says in verse 3, This is the very thing I wrote you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. Again, it's generally agreed that that does not match the characteristic of 1 Corinthians. So that probably was a third letter written before 2 Corinthians, and therefore 2 Corinthians was probably his fourth letter. But our understanding of inspiration, the preservation of scriptures, doesn't have a problem with that. We understand that these are the two inspired books that God intended us to have, and he's preserved them for us. So we have the complete scriptures. But understanding there was a lot of interaction with Paul and the Corinthians, and these two letters are the ones that God has preserved for us. So, there are specific situations that Paul is addressing in this book. He is addressing some instructions on how to handle a repentant offender. So apparently there is somebody had done wrong, he'd given them some instructions, and they uh, needed to know how to deal with that person. Um, but uh, I must have skipped that. Did I get ahead here? Alright, or I missed something. Alright, so let's look at dates. I guess it's time to look at date. Um, so the date of 2 Corinthians, Corinthians, so it's after 1 Corinthians, logically, um, but not long. So it's estimated that is probably somewhere between 56 and 57 A.D. is probably when he wrote this book. Uh, it is believed that he, he wrote this book from Macedonia and that it was delivered by Titus. So Titus is the one who took it. Titus being very similar to Timothy, uh, having an active role in working with Paul, and Titus also one who uh, has a epistle written directly to him that we have recorded as well. So we also then have... Uh, the greeting, in specific, uh, looking at that, um, um, I must have missed a slide here, so I just want to handle this real quick uh, in case it doesn't come up later, but I, I wanted to say part of what he's writing to do in Second Corinthians, he's dealing with some specific issues. So one, he's dealing with a repentant offender. You can see in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, he's giving them instructions on how to receive back that person that's repentant. In chapters 8 through 9, he's dealing with the subject of an offering that he's collecting. He's planning to take to the poor saints in Jerusalem. So uh, he's writing to address that, that they would partake in that offering. He is also writing to vindicate his ministry because part of what's happened in Corinthians, even though he was a part of that church getting started, as hard as this is to believe, there were many that were against Paul. There were people that were doubting him and causing trouble. And, and we understand probably the source of that were false teachers coming from the outside, but having an influence on what was going on in the Corinthian church. And these were probably Jewish, uh, Jewish, uh, Jewish people who uh, would be called Judaizers, those trying to call people back essentially to the Jewish ways, um, and turning away from the gospel. They were forceful people. We find out from how Paul responds to them in chapter 11. Uh, they were preaching another gospel, Paul says in chapter 11, and they were attacking Paul. And so, a big part of what he's doing in this book is actually defending himself and his ministry and how he has handled things and pointing out to them that these people are false apostles and essentially ministers of Satan. So, That is a huge part of what he's doing in 2 Corinthians. That especially becomes clear in the latter half of the book, chapters 10 to 13, where he attacks them. But going back to the greeting, we see here a standard format for Paul's greeting here in in, uh, verses 1 and 2. So he gives his name, introduces uh, who he is, he introduces the audience, and then he gives this greeting in chapter 2 of grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ this is very standard way that Paul writes his letters so we have grace here grace referring to God's unmerited favor so we sang this morning about grace and how amazing it is to think about God's grace God's amazing grace and Paul is just uh, wanting them to continue to enjoy the blessings of God's grace, so that's how he's starting here, as well as saying peace, which was a very common way for in the in the days of the Jews to speak to one another to say shalom or to say peace. And so, in a very similar way, he's using peace here, wanting them to have peace both individually and corporately as a church, and that's what he is. Wanting for them. And he notes here the source of this grace and the peace is God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul has a very simple, straightforward, standard greeting and then moves on, as we'll see, Lord willing, next week, um, beginning of his message in uh, communicating with the Corinthians. But uh, I need to hurry. I just wanted to share with you some of the major themes of the book quickly and some contributions of the book of 2 Corinthians. So, what are some of the major themes that we find in this book, as we'll see over the next few weeks and months? We're going to see themes related to comfort and suffering. Paul starts out um, talking about their suffering and, and the comfort that God gives and how in our suffering God comforts us, and then we can, in turn, be a comfort to other people because of the comfort which God has given to us. He also is going to talk about the glory of the new covenant. See, some of the attackers that were coming in were trying to encourage people to go back to Judaism, and he's making it very clear that the new covenant, what we have in Jesus Christ, is superior. It's glorious. It's greater than what they had back then. There's no reason to go back to such... Things that are dead. The dead letter he talks about in chapter 3 versus the spirit that gives life. So he talks about that. He also talks about uh, temporal versus eternal. There is talk about how we have this treasure in earthen vessels and that we are in these temporary frail bodies, but we look forward to being absent from our bodies and to be present with the Lord someday and how we long for that. He talks about that as well. He also talks about our being strong in weakness. In that classic passage in chapter 12, he talks about his thorn in the flesh and how he doesn't get what he's prayed for. He's asked God to take this terrible thing away from him. And, and understanding who the Apostle Paul was, certainly his motivation wasn't just his comfort. He probably felt there was a tie to his effectiveness in ministry. And, that, and yet, God says no. No. And he says, my grace is sufficient for thee. So we have this theme that we see throughout this book, and it may be one of the largest ones, that we are strong in weakness. And and he points out how God is glorified. When we are weak, it shows how God is strong. God is powerful, and therefore he is glorified in our weakness because his strength is made known. He also talks about the sufficiency of God's grace, how God's grace is sufficient, as he mentioned in that prayer request where he wants this thorn to be taken away, and God says, no, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. So we talked about grace as God's unmerited favor, but grace is also God's enabling power. He gives us power to endure. He gives us grace, he gives us strength so that we can do what he wants us to do in spite of our own limitations and weaknesses as human beings. He gives sufficient grace, and there's a huge theme throughout the book of 2 Corinthians. And we also see some unique contributions to just finish up here um, in this book. Uh, We see, as we saw in in chapter 5, verse 21, I'm going to read that for you. This is the most succinct, Communication of the substitutionary atonement. I believe we find in the New Testament. He says here in verse 21 of chapter 5, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is an explanation of the substitutionary atonement. Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, died on the cross for us. He took upon Himself the guilt of our sin was punished in our place in our, as a substitute so that He then would pay for that sin and then would die and, and would be raised again showing that payment was made in full. He is our substitute paying our sin so that we could be righteous. We, we can't just get rid of our own sin. We can't just change and be different we need to be forgiven we need to be cleansed but our sin needs to be paid for and that's what jesus christ did he wasn't just an example dying on the cross he was our substitute he died in our place and we have the beautiful succinct communication of that in second corinthians 5 21 we also have an emphasis on the new covenant in this book as we talked about in chapter three And this is essentially the largest discussion on the New Covenant outside of the book of Hebrews. So this is a significant part of 2 Corinthians and a significant contribution. We also have the theology of unanswered prayer. How about that? Paul explains why sometimes God doesn't give us what we're asking. Sometimes we don't have answers to prayer, and he he walks through that in his own life. And if you think anyone would have been heard by God and would have reason to get what he's asking, it would be the Apostle Paul. And yet, there was a prayer that he prayed multiple times that God did not answer, and helps us understand that's for the glory of God. There are times when God does not answer prayer for His glory and for our good. We see that in 2 Corinthians we also have a unique insight into the life and ministry of Paul. Uh, no book in the New Testament gives us more details about the, the sufferings of Paul and the heart of Paul. It's a very passionate book, very emotional, and it's, and it's unique among the letters that we have from Paul in the New Testament. And lastly, there is also some unique information about the tactics we see used by Satan... In opposition to the gospel, we're told that he blinds the minds of unbelievers in chapter 4. We're told about how he uses deception, trying to deceive the minds of believers to lead them away from the truth. We're told about how he uses ministers of righteousness. He uses people who proclaim to be believers or proclaim to be Christians and uses them for his evil purposes. We're told how he even disguises himself as an angel of light and how he also can have a role in afflicting believers like we see in chapter 12 with the thorn in the flesh as Paul says. So second Corinthians has many unique and significant contributions and it's going to be hopefully a great joy and encouragement to look at this book in the coming weeks and months. So what can you do? So I said something very similar when we started the book of James. What, what can you do? Uh, not a whole lot of application today, uh, but I do think what you can do, what you can take away, is to read the book ahead of time. Think about what we're going to be talking about. The more you're familiar with it, the more that you're uh, anticipating what's going to be talked about, the better equipped you are to understand the significance of what's being communicated. And pray about it. Pray that God would use it to... Change your life, pray for me i, I my, my wife can testify there's many times I'm struggling with what is this saying, what does this mean, and how do I explain this and I appreciate your prayers because i I want to be used by God to accurately communicate what it says, so pray for for that, and that it could be communicated in a way that 's clear and understandable and the right applications made so there's much to pray about there's much to think about I encourage you to look forward to anticipate and pray about our coming weeks in the book of 2 Corinthians. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have this book. We thank you that you have worked in the, in the life of the Apostle Paul in, in these marvelous ways. And, and yet, Father, uh, though we tend to look at other human beings and elevate them Ultimately, you are the hero, and help us to see that repeatedly, even even looking ahead in some of what uh, has been written here, we see how Paul repeatedly talks about his weakness and his frailty as a human being, so that your glory and power would be shown. Help us to see that, father, as we look through this book, Help us to understand more about your power and how your grace works in our lives and in moments of weakness and suffering and affliction and hardship. And uh, I pray that you would encourage us with it. May it be a, a cause of great joy to, to see your grace and how you work and how you get the glory because we're nothing, and yet you do great things through us for your, for your glory. Help us to be anticipating with excitement what you have for us in this book.